All right, well, I am, uh, I'm going to just jump right in here. I want to read the first part of the passage that we're looking at this morning. And um, it's, a, it's a passage that talks about living out our walk of faith with the Lord with the intentionality of an Olympic athlete. So uh, it's um, in verse 24 to 27 in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, right behind me. I'm going to just read this quickly. It says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, I think you might be able to just divide the entire world up into two basic categories. There are those who like to work out, and there are others who loathe working out. Um, I don't know which one you fall into, but I happen to fall into that first category. I, I, I like to work out. I, I block out a time in my schedule just about every day to have that time set aside so I can get out on a bike ride or go for a run or just do something that'll work up a sweat. And, and most times after I do that, I come back and I'm like charged, you know, I'm re-energized, I'm ready to go for the rest of the day. Um, Although I do have to admit that when it comes to like serious athletic endeavors and accomplishments, I am more of a completer than I am a competer. Okay, that's just me being honest with you. Um, Some of you here are not like that. Some of you are competers. You are way high and to the right on the competitive scale. And if you are, there's a good chance that you love everything about that passage I just read, right? That is like you. Um, I've got a few competitors in my family, including my wife. Um, Don't let the smile fool you, okay? (laughs) Diane is very friendly, but she's fierce, and she's not here this morning, so I get to talk about her. (laughs) But... um, If she is doing something, if you know her, you know that she is in it to win. And if there's no win, she is like, why bother? Uh, That's just the way she's wired. I have a feeling Paul was wired that same way. I mean, who else would say something like this? All the runners run, but only one receives the prize, right? In Paul's way of looking at the world, there are no participation trophies, right? That just is not going to happen. Everyone is not a winner. Uh, There's only one winner. It's the one who crosses the line first. The rest, they may or not be whiners, but they're definitely not winners. There's just one. So um, that's just the way competitive people view the world. And we need people like that. Whether you are competitive, whether you like to work out, whether your idea of working out is lifting the remote control off of the coffee table, that's the extent of it, or, or maybe you like taking on an Ironman. The point that this passage is making is real basic, that there are principles found in the arena of athletic competition that apply directly to our lives with Christ, to spiritual growth. 
And that's what we're looking at this morning. We're, we're, we're in a series called um, Growing Pains. We're making our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Corinthians is a letter that's written from St. Paul the Apostle. He, he wrote it to a group of Christ followers in a city called Corinth. And these were a group of people who were struggling with growing spiritually. And I think what we found as we've been making our way through this book is that we can see just a little bit of ourselves in them. If we're honest, um, we oftentimes struggle today with the same things that they were struggling with back in their day. And so the, the point of that passage that I just read is that spiritual progress is a byproduct of intentional action. Right? Not very complicated. Uh, every athlete, he says, exercises self-control in all things. And so the outcome, it's always going to go beyond gifting and ability and talents and all those things that we've been given by God. It's, it's what we add to that. It's the discipline, the self-control that we put in place to make the most of what it is that we've been given. That's an essential component uh, to winning and basically, it comes down to like living intentionally, doing life on purpose. And so elite athletes, you know, they generally, um, they watch what they eat, right? The Olympian athletes are probably not going to make a diet out of Hostess cupcakes or Twinkies. Um, the amount of rest they get on a daily basis, that matters too. The, the determining factor for everything, they choose what to do or, or what not to do, it's it's funneled through this grid of, is this going to help me get the win or not? That's, that's what matters. And so Paul is challenging his friends, his Corinthian friends, and us as well to live out our walk with the Lord with that kind of intentionality. He's sort of like the coach, you know, who's just using all the tools in his toolbox. He wants to inspire. He wants to bring out the best in us. And the reality is when it came to his friends in Corinth, uh, at this point, at least, there wasn't a whole lot of intentionally going on in their walk with the Lord. They, they weren't running to win. They were more like just kind of just hopscotching around aimlessly, indifferent and inattentive to where they were going, what they were leading to in their walk with God. Maybe there are some of you here this morning and you're thinking to yourselves, that about sums up where I'm at. Spiritually, that is exactly where I'm at. And if that's the case, I want to say, first of all, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, you are in the right place. You are in good company. There is not a person in this place who hasn't been there at one point or another. We, we all find ourselves there at sometimes. Uh, but there's a critical question that needs to get asked. Are you ready to move? Are you content to stay where you are? Are you willing to take the next step to add intentionality to your walk with the Lord? See, that's a question. The answer, the way we answer that question is so important because the truth is, is it really matters. It really matters. The, the Lord has, has given us so much and we, we talk about how great a salvation we've been given because of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. Our destiny is sealed. And there's a question, though, a follow-up question. What are we doing 
with what we've been given? Are we just hopscotching around or are we taking steps forward? Salvation is given as a free gift, but it needs to be worked out intentionally in our daily lives, our our lives on a day-to-day basis. And, And that's what he's getting at here. Paul's trying to make that point. He's trying to impress that reality on his friends. And to do that, he kind of goes from gym class with the athletic analogy, and now he's going to take us to history class. And he's going to share this history lesson, this, this story about their forefathers and how they went about running their race, how they lived out their faith. And, and so let's, let's read what comes next. This is uh, verse 1 in chapter 10. It says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, And all passed through the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So so this history lesson that we're we're hearing about here, it's, it's about the second greatest salvation story the world has ever known. It's called the Exodus. Um, It is the preeminent event of the Old Testament. The Exodus meant to Jewish people what the cross means to Christians. There's an entire book of the Bible that's all about it, about how the Lord rescued his people from the bondage of slavery, of Pharaoh when they were in Egypt. And, And I'll just give you the real broad overview of how that went down what their salvation story was like. Uh, God raised up Moses to lead his people to freedom. And so Moses, and when he just laid it all out in front of Pharaoh, he said, let my people go. But Pharaoh, uh, being that he was the uncontested leader of the strongest, most prosperous nation on the planet, had no intention of cooperating with that agenda. So he said, no. So God provided a little bit of incentive, a little bit of motivation. He sent a series of terrible plagues, and in very short time, things went downhill for Pharaoh. He found himself outmatched on every level and just in this world of hurt. And so finally, he gets to the point where he relents, lets them go, get out of here. But the moment he says that, his pride almost kicks back in, and he changes his mind, And as the Israelites are making their way out, he starts chasing them down with his armies. And then Moses and Israelites, they're on the very edge of the sea, of the Red Sea. And and that sea was the final boundary line that stood between, between slavery and freedom. And Moses set his staff in the water. And when he did that, the water parted. The Lord piled up the water into solid walls on either side and this path of dry ground opened up in front of them and they walked through the waters and escaped to freedom. And then when Pharaoh and his armies tried to follow in pursuit, they got into into the sea and the water just came crashing down and and washed them away. And so that that was Israel's salvation story. That was the original salvation story. And In this passage we're looking at, it's highlighting a couple of really key things. The similarities between their story and our story. So when they passed through the sea, uh, the point Paul's making here is that that was their baptism. 
They, they were baptized just like we're baptized. We practice, we practice baptism, right? It's that initial defining mark that kind of identifies a person. I, I belong to the Lord. I've been saved. I've been spiritually reborn. And the point he's making is that the Israelites did that too. Every one of them were baptized in the Red Sea. And not only that, along with us, they received communion just like we do. Uh, except their communion wasn't matzah crackers. It was manna from heaven. And instead of wine or grape juice to drink, they drank this water from the rock that Moses struck, this supernatural thing that uh, was theirs. And, and then Paul clarifies, that rock, make no mistake about it, that was Christ. Point being that Jesus was just as involved in Israel's salvation as he was in, in our salvation. He was there on the scene in both cases. So here's what he's establishing. Their salvation, that story is just as legit as yours and mine's. Same thing. The question, though, is what did they do with that salvation they've been given? How did they live it out? How did they run their race after they were saved on the other side of Egypt? That that last verse we just read, it gives a little hint about how it played out. It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay, we're starting to see something. This story, it's turning into a cautionary tale. Um, They started out good. They were given so much, but something went sideways. Let's, Let's keep reading and see what happened to them. It says, Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So after the Lord freed the Israelites, long story short is they just turned their backs on him. They they turned away from the God who saved them. It says they set their hearts on what was evil. Maybe you remember how that story went. They're they're out of Egypt. They're no longer out of Egypt. And Moses goes up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And and the moment he leaves, the Israelites, they gather all together. They put all the gold in a pot. They melt it down. They boil it down. And they cast it into this idol image that they could worship, the golden calf. See, they wanted, they were looking for something to worship that was a little more palatable than the Lord. They were looking for a a God that they could manage, someone they can control, someone they could be in charge of. That's that's the essence of what idolatry is. You know what idolatry is? is? You know what I think God is like? Keep talking. It's replacing the living God for the God of your choosing a God that's cast the way that you want him to be instead of the way that he is. And when they ignored God, 
they also indulge in their lustful appetites. Forget about what God is. Forget about what he wants. My life is about me getting what I want. That's how their story played out. They indulge in their lusts. And at the end of the story, you see that it just didn't turn out too well. Before that day was over, 23,000 Israel bodies lay dead, sprawled out all over the place. Now, I wish I could tell you that there's a happy ending to this story. That somehow, something happened. Someone said a magic formula. Someone sprinkled pixie dust on the scene. And everything turned out okay. And they all lived happily ever after. Right? That's what I'd love to be able to tell you. But I can't. This is, this is not a fairy tale. Life isn't a fairy tale either. This history lesson shows us that the Israelites, they learned the hard way about the reality of choices and consequences. There are consequences to turning away from the God who saved you, who's given such a great salvation, who's blessed you with so much. There's, there's consequences to intentionally driving your life in a direction that defies the living God and intentionally decides to indulge instead in my own selfish appetites. And none of those consequences are good. See, the story is showing us that the Israelites, they didn't finish the race. They fouled out. They were disqualified. And that's how their story ended. And so there's the history lesson. So you kind of say, okay, thank you, Paul. Or you're probably saying, thank you, Pastor, for giving us such a warm, fuzzy story on a Sunday morning. I feel so good. Where is this going, right? Uh, before we finish, we got to talk about some take-homes. What is it? What is there to learn from a tragic tale? What can we take away? Well, it tells us as these things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. It, it is there. It's being told to serve as an example of this is, not, this is how not to run your race. It's a wake-up call. Be intentional about where you're going. Don't let what happened to them happen to you. So we can learn from their mistakes instead of repeating them and learning ourselves the hard way. And that's the whole purpose for Paul sharing a tragic story. Believe it or not, it's out of love. Because love cares enough to caution. He is doing whatever he can do to make sure they don't foul out of their own race. And so he urges them and he urges us as well to learn the lesson. Apply intentionality. Do for yourself what they weren't willing to do for themselves. And that starts by taking an honest look at our own lives. Self-assessment. Wherever it is that we find traces of their story taking shape and playing out in our own lives, do something. Take action. Don't ignore it. Don't put up with it. Root it out at all costs. 
And so Paul's very direct. He's not pulling any punches here, and his instructions are crystal clear. Here's what he says. Do not be idolaters. Do not indulge in sexual immorality. Do not put Christ to the test. Do not grumble against God. No asterisks on those. No conditions. No, but, but what about? It's about as direct as you can get. It's a wake-up call. Wake-up calls, by definition, are kind of uh, jarring and direct. And, you know, if you're asleep and you're like dreaming in dream stage, REM stage, that's kind of what it takes, some kind of strong alarm to just inject a healthy dose of reality to bring you back to the living, right? It's not always pleasant, but sometimes it's, it's just necessary. Or how about when you see a loved one in a situation where they're in immediate danger? Say you got a five-year-old son, and they're making their way onto the highway into oncoming traffic, um, excuse me, son, I have a suggestion for you. Would you please consider whether this is the prop? No. Get out. Pull him. It's the most loving thing you can do. That's what's happening here. So what this is getting at is that awareness is everything. And the truth is that sometimes that's the hardest part. Aware, realizing that this wake-up call applies to me. It applies to you. It applies to all of us. You see, the Israelites, for whatever reason, they were convinced that they'd been saved. And they were out of danger. There was nothing left to be concerned about. God isn't going to judge us. He judged those Egyptians. We're his chosen people. We're special. He saves us. It's a common miscalculation. It still happens today. I'm saved. I prayed the prayer. I raised my hand. I walked down the aisle. I got baptized. I did the thing, whatever the thing is. Check mark, I'm done. Now I can go. I can do whatever I want. I got my fire insurance policy. Don't confuse the start gate for the finish line. That's what happened here. You know, the New Testament, when it talks about salvation, you know, it talks about it in all three tenses. <clears throat> salvation is talked about in the past tense. I have been saved. It's also talked about in the present tense. I am being saved. We are being saved. And it's also talked about in the future tense. We will be saved that's going to be completed when Jesus returns. That adds a little bit of nuance to the way that we understand this. Maybe we should talk about salvation the same way the Bible does. It's probably a good idea, right? See, the Israelites, their race is over, but the point is that ours isn't. In their story, there's only two of them who finished the race. So sad. Caleb and Joshua were the only ones of it. A whole generation. The rest of them fouled out. And there's a very uncomfortable point that this passage is leading us to that we can't avoid. And here's what it is. 
even though you're saved, you can still foul out. Okay, now you can work that one through any way you like. I have a particular theological grid in my mind. You do too. Um, But somehow you've got to be able to account for that as an actuality. That's the only way we're ever going to hear the wake-up call and not blow it off. So this is a very sobering subject. It's a challenging thing to wrestle through, and, and it might be a little bit unsettling for you. Maybe you find yourself maybe just feeling, I, I'm starting to feel a little bit insecure about my walk with the Lord. I'm actually got a little bit of terror creeping into my heart. I want you to listen to the next verse. The next two verses, there is both a challenge and a promise. And the two of them are tied together. And God holds them out for us both to balance them both together. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13, it says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the challenge part. The next part is the promise. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. It's one of my favorite verses. It's a great one, right? There's this, there's this sobering reality, this challenge that uh, you think you're standing strong, right? What is that based on? Is it because you, 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 you received the communion elements, right? Is it because you got baptized? Is it because of your profession of faith? It's something that you can point to in the past. There's only one place to have assurance when it comes to where we are with the Lord. It's an ongoing, forward walk with the Lord, current, present tense, today. That's it. But then we balance that with the promise. The promise that God is faithful. There's something beautiful there. God has no intention of tearing you down. That's not what he set on. He is set on building us up. And so realize this, God does not motivate by threat, right? He is not a mob boss, right? The moment you step out of line, you better watch out. He's going to punch you out. That's not your God. Your God is ready, willing, and able to provide you with all the power, all the strength, everything you need to keep on running your race, He's there to navigate us through all of the challenges, all the temptations, everything that we encounter in life. And if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you know there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of obstacles. This this race of faith that we are on, it's it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's long and it's hard and there will be times when we blow it. Right? There will be times when we will find ourselves flat out on the ground, down for the count. And when you're there, your heavenly father will be right there beside you, helping you get back up, seeing you through and on your way again. You will find him all the grace you need, all the strength you need to get past every temptation. Even when we give in to those temptations, he still is able to push us forward and keep us going. But the other side of that is that that same strength that he promises in those times of temptation, 
they do not apply when we set our lives on testing him, right? When, when we blow him off, when we orient our lives to live for ourselves and leave him behind and just factor him out of our lives, there's no strength for that. In fact, what it says is you're on your own, right? More than that, when we put ourselves in that position, we put ourselves at war with God. And the last line of the passage, all the way down in verse 22, it says that this is not a fight you're going to win. It says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And just in case you're wondering, what's the answer to that question? You're not. I'm not. You're not going to win the battle against the Lord. I'm not going to read the rest of the passage. The rest of the passage is actually just talking about how the Corinthians were to implement that in the specific situation they were in. You can read that on your own time. But what I do want to do is just uh, challenge us. What are the take-homes? How can we apply these principles for the situation that we're in? Or what does intentionality look like in your walk with the Lord? Let me, let me offer a couple First one is to welcome the warning. Welcome the warning. There will be times when hard hard truth will be spoken to your life. There's one of two ways you can respond to that. Oh, stop. You're being so mean to me. You're so insensitive. Don't take that approach. Welcome the warning as an expression of truth, particularly if it's coming from someone who you know loves you. That's number one. The second thing is this. God hasn't changed. God does not change. The same God who led the Israelites is the same God who is leading our lives. Do not set your minds on trying to reshape God. We cannot change God. God changes us. Keep that intact. Number three, salvation is the starting point. The finish line is when Jesus returns. Lastly, devote yourself daily. It's the best way to safeguard your life from defiance, from being in that place where the Israelites are, where they found themselves. Don't let distance build up between you and and the Lord. Don't let your heart grow hard towards the things of God. Keep it soft. Keep on going to him every day. Lord, I'm yours. Lord, my life is yours. Lord, do through me, in me, everything that you want to do. I was at the bike shop some point last week. I'm at the bike shop most some point every week, that's my family. Um, but uh, I'm talking to uh, the one guy there, and, um, you know, just uh, talking about, he said, hey, I got a race coming up. And I said, oh, wow, that's interesting. Is it a, what kind of race is, is it race you have to qualify? He says, you know, it's actually, it's the premier event in the country for gravel biking. And I'm like, that's amazing. You had to qualify for that. And he said, yeah, I did. And I said, I got to ask you a question. I see your Strava page. Strava is one of the social media things for exercise freaks. 
And so it records every workout you do, and then you can share it with your other exercise freaks so you're not sharing it with everybody who doesn't care, right? <laughs> like on your Facebook feed. Um, but, uh, but I said, Enrique, I see, your, I see your Strava feed, and you do about three workouts a week. And you are at the very top, the pointy end of the most competitive cyclists around. He says, yeah. He says, a lot of people don't know that. You don't need to do a lot of workouts. He says, there's one key. Every workout has a purpose. Everything I do is intentional. I think that's kind of getting at the point that this is bringing us to. Set up our lives in such a way that everything we do is drawing us closer in our walk with the Lord. Building bridges towards the things of God and not taking us farther away. Keep running the race. Keep moving forward. The race is not over. Run it not in your own strength, but in his strength. And watch what he does. Let's pray together.